As we take up our study in the book of Romans this morning, I remind you what we have seen already, that pride is like bad breath. It's easier to discern coming from someone else than it is in ourselves. But this is an issue that is addressed here as we are urged by the mercies of God to offer our bodies as living sacrifices and see that our minds are transformed by Holy Spirit renewal. And as we look at the mind being transformed, the first thing on the list is that we address the proud thoughts that reside in our own minds. Do not think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but think of yourself with sound thinking. With a complex play on words, Paul makes a powerful exhortation to humility. Do you remember these slides? All the way back to Romans 5, the two Adams, the first Adam, the second Adam, each of them with a belt around their waist and this host of people that these atoms represent, the first atom representing all humanity hanging on his belt, the last atom, a smaller number, but all those that will be in heaven represented there. And what we find is that as we are united to Christ, we are united to one another within the body. Being united to one another in love, they have communion in each other's gifts and graces. We have a share in the gifts that God gives to various ones in the assembly. So, once again, we're urged to deal with the proud thoughts, and as he moves dealing with the proud thoughts, God, through Paul, argues for each of our humility. I am to be humble because of the diversity of function in the body. There's not just me. It takes more than myself to be effective because of the profound unity of the body. We are members of one another. Because of the source of the gifts, we have gifts, whatever gifts we have, as apportioned by God in heaven. And further, we argue for humility because of loving service within the body. I do not have gifts that I may hang upon me like uh, some sort of military decoration or award so that everyone sees how wonderful I once was, but rather we are to have these gifts so that we can serve one another. And if you care, then come to the handout sheet and we'll notice Roman numeral one, the humility. Humility because of the intended diversity of gift and function in the body. First of all, A, the church's spiritual body is like a physical body. And this may seem to be humdrum to us. If we've been Christians for any length of time, uh, we know that 
Paul is likening the church to a body. But notice here the connection, first of all, to verse 3. Verse 4 begins with, for as in one body, he's arguing for humility. The 4 points back to verse 3. Paul is saying that we each need to be humbly content with the grace that God has gifted to us. We all know this about the human body, that there are these various parts, that it's silly to kind of conceive of an elbow joint apart from the rest of the body. It's extremely helpful, but without the rest of the body, it just doesn't make any sense. This analogy of the body is one that is a favorite with Paul. Back a few years before he wrote Romans, he wrote to the Corinthians and spoke of the church as the body. He does it here in Romans 12. He's going to do it again in Ephesians. He's going to speak in Ephesians 4 and elsewhere of how the church is the body of Christ. And it may be that over the course of the years that there is a maturation in his thought, but more plainly, there is a different emphasis in each of these gift passages regarding the body depending on the particular circumstance. Here, the emphasis is on humility because of the diversity that exists. There is not one person that could suitably represent the body. So the, the apostle comes and he says, we need to think of ourselves as a living organism, an organism where the various parts are interacting. We heard wonderfully in the Sunday school class of the design of the hand and how the processes of the mind are going to the hand and the change of processes in a fraction of a millisecond. There is this wonderful cooperation and interdependence. But notice, first of all, God wants us to see ourselves as a living organism. And when someone is saved, he brings them into the body and plugs them in and gives them usefulness. There are other times when he's going to speak of the body as an institution. We're like a nation. And we've got our citizens. Uh, there are times when he's going to speak of the body uh, as a temple, and we're the living stones that are uh, put in our place as we are converted. But here we're seeing the living organism and the diversity. Secondly, B, the church's diversity of function mirrors the physical body. The key message for us here in verse 4 is the latter part, and the members do not all have the same function. If you want the function of the body to take place, then you need all of the members, all of the distinct parts to be working together as a living organism. First uh, Corinthians 12 and verse 14 the body does not consist of one member, 
but of many. And we're not all the same. We're different. When God created you, when he knit you together in your mother's womb, and as you come forth from the womb, there's different colors of hair. There's different shades of skin. There are different intellectual capabilities. There are different verbal skills, and it's, it's already programmed largely into that. So we say each of us is utterly unique. And when God takes someone by the new birth and brings them into the church, there is again this uniqueness of gift that God graces us for the ministry of one to another. And it ought not to be surprising that the God who made us in our first birth to have such unique diversity, that as we come into the church, there is as well a diversity of gift. And this is part of the reason why we can have more gifts listed out in 1 Corinthians 12. There probably isn't an exact number. And we have less, seven, listed out here in Romans chapter 12, and four, depending on how you divide them, as listed out in Ephesians chapter 4. What do we learn? Well, the benefits that any one member receives from the rest of the body is greater than what that one member contributes. That one puzzle piece is just part of the many. Sometimes this little finger, if it's you or if it's me in the body, when we're simply looking at ourselves, and it's kind of hard to do that, but if you could simply look at that little finger, the more we look at ourselves, we get this, you get it right up there in front of you, it gets larger and, and more important. But this finger is going to depend an awful lot on the eyes taking in a danger signal, the, the nose smelling smoke, the ears hearing someone yelling fire, that little finger is going to receive more benefit from being joined to the rest of the body than maybe what that little finger is really going to contribute to the overall function of the body. And so we're to think humbly. We're to see that we are one member, that we are one part, and there will be that which we contribute, but there is a larger portion that we receive. What else do we learn? Well, you are to offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And in order to have that mind of yours to be transformed, the big ticket item is humility. And to promote this humility, Paul shows our diversity and our interdependence. 
And if you do not feel that you are receiving benefits from the rest of the body, then you need to think again. And it may be that as a a little finger, the rest of the body is so shriveled that it's not able to do you any good. That, That might be. But it might also be that you have pulled yourself back from that interaction, from that fellowship, that shared life of the body that you're not receiving the nourishment and maybe it's not so much a matter of a problem with the body as it is for your willingness to be connected to the body. So Roman number one, we are to be humble because of the God-intended diversity, Roman numeral two. Humility because of the profound unity of the body. And here in verse five, we read, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Notice with me, first of all, A, believers are one body in Christ. It's the only time in Romans that Paul is speaking of one body. He's going to speak of it as he illustrates the unity of the body, 1 Corinthians 10. He speaks of that one loaf as a picture of the one body, and we are to partake of that one loaf. 1 Corinthians 12, he's going to say, the body is one and has many members. All the members of the body, though many, are one body, and so it is with Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 27, now you are the body of Christ. Ephesians 4, uh, we receive gifts to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Ephesians 3 and verse 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body. So the the emphasis here is that the body of individuals that God has saved, whatever their background and gathered together in this local expression, it is one body in Christ. What does it mean to be united with the Lord Jesus. Well, we're one with him in his death. We're one with him in his burial. We're one with him in his resurrection. Not that we were really there on the cross or in the tomb with Jesus. But we have this spiritual union with the Lord Jesus that when he is buried, So we are buried, and when he is raised, we as well live in the newness of life. So first of all, believers are that one body in Christ. Secondly, B, believers are members of one another. And even though this section on spiritual gift is not as long, plainly, as what we find in 1 Corinthians 12, Yet this phrase is really profound, isn't it? Though, the latter part of verse 5, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, 
and individually members of one another. Paul says something similar in 1227 of Corinthians, individually members of it, but this expression is perhaps a higher level, individually members of one another. We belong to one another and they belong to us. Let me read from 1 Corinthians 12. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would this be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? So what Paul is arguing here is that diversity, but more than that, our interdependence. The foot benefits from the eye. The eye says there is a cliff here with a drop-off of at least 250 feet. Foot, don't go there. The eye is going to benefit from the ear. The eye that doesn't see the fire yet is, and doesn't smell it yet is able to hear fire, fire, and knows that there's a warning, and then you're going to be very glad as eyes, ears, and nose, usually giving direction to be connected to those feet. There is diversity. There is interdependence. And if we are united to the Lord Jesus Christ, it is not enough to be an individual Christian. That individual Christian is to be brought into the body of Christ. One commentator friend, Aliot, says that it is in some ways striking that when Paul is talking to believers now on, okay, we're really going to get to the practical stuff in Romans chapter 12. But it's not a lesson on you need to read the Bible. You need to be starting someplace in the Bible and reading consecutively, and you need to be praying. Those things are wonderfully important, aren't they? But where he starts is saying that as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to be plugged in with the body. You need to be plugged into the church. Jewish believers who not so very long ago were very glad that they were not Gentiles. And Jewish believers that were even glad that they were not Gentile believers. And now they are being told to be in the same body with those Gentile believers. And it's mutual. Gentile believers who not so long ago, chapter 11, needed to be told that they ought not to be arrogant 
against their fellow uh, Jewish brethren, they are now told to be a part of the same body. Jews, Gentiles, slaves, and free, whatever our difference of background, we are to be a part of the same body. And our point that we need to underscore is that if you are hanging on the belt of Jesus Christ, if Jesus Christ has represented you in his death and burial and resurrection, then Paul is going further and saying, you need not just be joined to Christ, you need to be joined with everybody else that is on the belt of Jesus Christ. So humility, why? Because of the God-intended diversity. Because of the profound unity. Instead of saying uh, how wonderful you are as a finger, you need to notice that you are what you are in connection with the rest of the body. You are profoundly united to other believers. Thirdly, Humility because of the source of the varied gifts. The source of the varied gifts. Notice with me, first of all, A, the reality of the believer's gifts. Having gifts. Having gifts. Each member of the body has a gift. If God is going to save you and place you within the body, he's going to give you something to do within the context of the body. If you like, 1 Peter chapter 4 is perhaps plainer. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's grace. And the Apostle Peter may have an even more compacted statement on gift But what he says is really profound and really important. Each one has received a gift. Use it in the service of one another as good stewards of God's very gift. Every word has meaning as breathed out by the Spirit. The reality of believers' gifts. Secondly, B, the variety of believers' gifts. Having gifts... Now, verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. There is variety, there is diversity, and let us have the repetition to make its impact on us. We have gifts, we have different gifts. Now, thirdly, see the source, the source of the believer's gifts. Middle part now of verse 6. According to the grace given to us. Sounds very much like what Paul just said in verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you. God gave me grace to save me in the initial act of my repentance and my faith. But now having been saved, Paul is talking about extra grace. 
grace that is given to help us in ministering to one another in the body of Christ. He says it of himself, verse 3. Now he says it concerning all of us as believers, verse 6, according to the grace given to us. So God gives us grace to believe. God gives us grace to participate and function in the local church. You remember last week, we saw how God gave us initial faith, and then God gives us ongoing faith for, to help us in the use of our gifts. Now, what's the point? Well, let me ask you, how do you feel when someone at work really takes the fruit of your work or takes some idea that you've laid out and then they take this of yours and then they give it to the boss as their own. How does that make you feel? Well, all of a sudden, you become a, a, an excellent moral judge. This is not right. It's a kind of theft. Taking credit for what someone else has done. Someone else who's me, I really feel it. Well, how do you suppose God feels? God is the one who has apportioned these graces. The, the, God is the one who has gifted the various graces, has given all these different abilities. And God can very easily become a moral judge. And God can say, this is not right. You're taking credit to yourself for something that I have given you. Listen to God as Paul speaks. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit. Brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one another. Aren't we amazing creatures, even in the life of the church? Somebody is, not only am I proud of my, I'm proud of my favorite preacher. And my favorite preacher, he's got this, and he's got this, and this, and this. And just enumerating. And God says, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7, Who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If you then received it, why do you boast as you did not receive it? And in the same way, that guy taking your ideas, your work to the boss, that woman taking your ideas and presenting it as her own, why does she do that? And God is saying to us, why do we do that? Why do we take the credit to ourselves as if whatever gift that we have, that we thought of it, and we sent away in the mail for it, and we got it, we did it. 
Further, here is the reality, variety, and divine source of our gifts in verse 6. And may God help us to be thoroughly biblical in our thinking. And if we are thoroughly biblical in our thinking, then we will be giving glory to God for any gifts that we have and not gifts, not glory to ourselves. And whatever preference we may have for a preacher or Apollos or Paul or Christ or Peter, we simply bless God for the graces, the gifts that God has given to that individual. Roman number one, diversity. Roman number two, unity. Roman number three, divine source. And now fourthly, humility demonstrated in believing and loving service. Humility demonstrated in believing and loving service within the body. Now, to the latter part of verse 6. And what we're going to hear Paul saying is, you need to take these wonderful gifts and employ them, use them, work with them for the good of the body. That's why they were given and that's what you need to do. You see how that promotes humility? Instead of me standing up front and letting you see all of the various metals that represent my abilities. Did you see all those? Did you get the glint? Instead of that, I simply take whatever abilities I have and I get to work with them. God gave them to us for us to use them. Let's dip into our text. Now, Romans 12, verse 6, the latter portion. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. Prophecy is the communicating of God's revealed truth. In the early days of the church, Prophets would have been receiving messages from heaven and giving that to the rest of the body. Sometimes a prophet hears from heaven and he foretells the future. Sometimes the prophet simply reads what God has already said and he applies it and he foretells. He speaks plainly to the people of God. Apostles are higher. There is no apostle there at the church at Rome, so it doesn't need to speak of them. He's already spoken, chapter 11, how he is an apostle to the Gentiles. They have a higher qualification, though, as apostles, having seen Jesus in the flesh, which gives the apostles a preeminence. Nonetheless, the noble prophet is to make sure that he's doing what? That he is employing his gift in the service of the people of God. And we trust that the noble prophet is going to be humble enough to say, 
I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. Whatever I can do to serve. And if God gives me a word from heaven, it is for this people's good. The particular guideline for the prophet then is to discharge his function with present faith, each according to the measure of faith, verse 3. And now what we're finding in verse 7, that this prophecy is to be laid out in proportion or in keeping in a context of our faith. So if I am the prophet, if you are the prophet, then I or you is only going to speak those things that God has given. I am doing this in faith. I believe God. I believe in what he has said. And I believe this is what he would have me to deliver. I don't want to go beyond what God has said. And I don't want to stop short of it. Remember young Samuel didn't really want to give the full message that God had spoken to him regarding Eli and what's going to be coming. Don't go beyond, don't stop short. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Humility tells the prophet that he exists for the good of the church. His is not to be a medal of honor. His is to be employed in the service of God's people. Secondly, having looked at prophecy, let gifts of lowly service be exercised in lowly service. And I can't be sure of this, but you almost wonder if Paul is coming from the realm of the heavens, the prophet who is hearing God speak, now coming into the realm of lowly service. In serve, if service, in our serving, first part of verse 7, and here's our word for table service that becomes the designation of those seven men in the book of Acts that are involved in administrating the food provision for the Hellenistic widows. Here is our word for the deacon. But we don't want to limit it to the deacon. Paul, I believe, is intentionally brought here. This word of lowly service was at one point used for serving the table in the home. And a free man would think that that job is below his dignity. So the, the, the serving your table as you sit there and eat, that's the job of a slave. It's lowly service. It's widely used regarding ministry. Paul speaks of his deaconing the word, the ministry of the word. It may be a ministry of caring for the poor, making sure those widows are being fed. Some want to take these various seven functions of Romans chapter 12 and say that it only pertains to known offices in the church. Well, that's, that may be good for the officers, 
And hopefully you'll have very humble officers. But why not have these words apply in their breadth of meaning to anyone that is involved in lowly service? When a cup of hot chocolate spills someplace there in the foyer, are you one who quickly has a rag in your hand and you're wiping it up? Do you have the ability to see the spill? Do you have the ability to get that wet rag and whatever else and quarantine the area and to get this taken care of? Do you have the ability to look at tables being set up and say, I bet there are chairs that need to go with those tables? Now, not all see this. I'm not trying to be funny. Not all see the need for these things to be done. But somebody needs to see it. And if you see it, you see what needs to be done, you're able to do it, then engage yourself in this lowly service. Use your God-given eye seeing details, seeing need, and enter in on it. And while you clean the gooey hot chocolate, don't wonder who's seeing you and who is noticing you. But if you've been given an ability even for lowly service, then do it in lowly service. You're thinking of the needs of the people of God. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than dwelling in the tents of wickedness. Prophecy, lowly service. And now thirdly, let the teacher serve the body in his teaching. The one who teaches, middle part of verse 7, or latter part of verse 7, the one who teaches in his teaching. Teaching makes things plain. Teaching starts with beginners and takes them as long or far as far along as you can. And as we speak of teachers, let's remember from the very simple teacher all the way out to the great and supreme example who is Jesus Christ, we should never have a desire to advance beyond this gift of teaching. It's a wonderful gift. Parents need to teach their children. Those with some level of gift can advance and collect the degree of SST, Sunday school teacher. God has given a gift. If you can take a common illustration like the human body and then attach some spiritual truth to that very well-known illustration, then there you go. Take the gift that God has given. Don't wonder why. You just use it. The one who has a gift in teaching, in teaching, employ it for the good of the church. Fourthly, D. Let the exhorter serve the body in his exhortation. 
first part of verse 8. The one who exhorts in his exhortation. Christian teaching that we just looked at constantly passes over into urging. It's one thing to bring the truth to the mind. You understand this picture of the body. You understand how the church is like a body. We can appeal to the mind. But exhortation, we're not so much appealing to the mind as we are the will and the conscience. This is what the body is. This is you in the body. Now this is what you need to do. And whether it's more of a, of a strong word of you need to get this done or whether it's a consoling word, a comforting word, an encouraging word, that's what the exhorter is doing. It's one thing for a teacher to be teaching through the Ten Commandments and to help us to see that taking God's name is in vain. I'm 69, but I still remember. I was in the church kitchen in my sixth grade Sunday school class under Mrs. Marple. And she had already laid out the teaching, and now she's going to start meddling. And she would have moved on in her sterner, more serious, but highly respected manner. Any use of the G's of G, gosh, or heck, is making light of God's names and works, and you must not do this. I was a violator of that at that time and continued to be a violator for years later. But there's a reason why I have this recollection of Mrs. Marple laying out the truth and then urging me to a kind of action. An exhorter takes the truth of God. Jesus Christ is coming again and when he's coming again, all of the believers that have died in Christ will be coming with him. And the exhorter takes these and says, now comfort one another with these words. Some of us are so awkward and nervous, we cannot bear to be direct with another individual. And others of us, are never so much comfortable as when they are sitting there with us, talking before us, and looking into our eyeballs and down into our souls. And they're very comfortable coming along, and as they're visiting there in the center of my soul, they go ahead and leave me a gift of an urging to this, or don't you dare do that. Or consolation or comfort. Now, if you have this gift, 
It may not be that you can really see into someone's soul, but there's a way of some people talking themselves into somebody's soul. You come as a loving friend with a genuine interest in how a brother or sister is really doing, and while you are there looking down into them, you leave them that gift a word of caution, a word of encouragement, a word of hope. And if we don't have this gift, we need to watch some who do and see how they do it. E, let the giver serve the body in sincerity. Here we are, second phrase of verse 8. The one who contributes... In generosity, I'm saying let the giver serve the body in sincerity. Who's the giver? Paul says in Romans 1 that I may impart, that I may give you some spiritual gift. First Thessalonians 2, we were ready to share with you, ready to give you not only the gospel, but also our own lives because you had become very dear to us. Luke 3 and verse 11, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Ephesians 4, 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share, something to give with anyone in need. The giver has an ability to see the need. And the giver has the ability to help meet that need. That's one of the reasons why we need to labor. So that we can help others out. And what is the mantra? What is the slogan of the giver? The one who contributes in his contribution. Isn't that what you might expect? But it's not. The one who contributes in sincerity, our word means simplicity, uh, and, and not having double motives, hence sincerity. Now, generosity is good if you understand that generosity is, is in the mind of the giver, that I'm just focusing on the need and I'm ministering to that need. But our problem is we're going to hear the one who's contributing with generosity and we're going to start thinking of the amount that was given. That's not the point. Simplicity, sincerity. Use your gift of giving not to advance something that you want. Serve the local church. Give to answer to the need, and that is the extent of your agenda. You don't want to be noticed for it. You don't want to be recorded as having done it. You get more reward in heaven that way anyway. Your giving is to help the needy, not to help you get noticed. In your giving, sincerity. F. Let the leader serve the body in zeal. Third part of verse 8 now. The one who leads with zeal. Where's our word used? Timothy 3, 4 in the list of qualifications. An elder must manage his own household well. 
1 Timothy 5.17, let elders who rule well, lead well, manage well. Titus 3 and verse 8, there are some who are to be devoted to good works. They lead in good works. They manage good works. The one who leads is someone who perhaps leads in the home or in the life of the church. And so what is a leader? What is a manager? At some level, the leader, the manager, is the one who is able to see what needs to be done knows the steps that it's going to take to get it done, and then, more than just giving a gift, is able to bring others along to meet those steps to get the thing done. One is written, he that manages fits best with the imperative phrase, in diligence, This may be a reference to the elder in the congregation, to a member of the church council, to a chairman of a committee, to anyone who is placed at the head of others for the purpose of performing some task. Here is an individual who sees what it needs, knows the steps, and brings people along in the process. And the church needs leaders, doesn't it? I just thought quickly of our VBS. Someone is going to lead in the realm of teaching this class and that others leading in teaching this class. And someone else is going to lead with a store. Somebody else is going to lead with recreation. Someone else is going to lead in the opening and the closings. And then there's someone who needs to lead the leaders and say, you're doing this and you're doing that, and this is how it's going to be done. And hopefully a leader of leaders is going to do this in such a way as to not get the specialized leaders annoyed at them. Now, we might expect that Paul's motto for the leader is going to be something like in gentleness and in sensitivity. And those would be good qualifications for a leader, right? But what does he say? Paul's motto for the leader is in diligence. The word means haste in the good sense. Prompt deficiency, no delay, no excuses. And and there's a self-conscious awareness that, well, God has given me some measure of ability and the church has recognized this measure of ability and they plugged me into this role, so I'm going to do my role. I'm going to do it for the good of the church. And yes, I want to be loving. Isn't the very next verse after this list of gifts? Let love be genuine. There's agape love that needs to be suffusing the expression of all of these gifts. But the leadership needs to be done in zeal. 
Leadership is broad in the church life. Deacons, though, need to lead. Men that we can sit over this matter, that can administrate this matter. An elder who rules well, who leads well, who manages well. G, the one who shows mercy. The one who shows mercy serves the body with gladness. The one who does acts of mercy. Someone is afflicted with a sickness, in a car accident, a broken bone, broken relationship. There's somebody who needs mercy. I can't take the problem away, but I can come get in the problem with them and help them to get through this. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Surely grudging mercy is not to be our standard. I'm going to help you, so quit complaining. I don't have the best attitude about it. Well, you got yourself in this mess, but here I am. No. For this one's slogan in cheerfulness is actually something stronger. Rejoicing at the opportunity of getting into someone else's distress with them because you get a sense of satisfaction from helping. They're in this miserable situation. And I just wanted to help. And here we close. H. Here is the wonder of agape love at work in the hearts of true believers. Agape love in the Father's heart for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Agape love in Christ's heart. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Agape love in Paul's heart. As he comes on the scene of the New Testament, he is taking the lives of Christians. But it's not long before we see him converted and changed and moving from that insolent opponent, this blasphemer and persecutor, to where I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you the more, am I to be loved less? Taking lives of Christians to giving his own life for Christians. And now agape love in believers' hearts. That's what we've got here in Romans 12, 4 through 8. Faith working through love. But before we can really carry out Romans 12, faith working through love to serve the body, we've got to make sure that we're right with God. We need to come to Romans 5 before we come to Romans 12. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Jewish believers not long ago are glad that they're not Gentile believers. Gentile believers who not long ago were glad that they were not Jewish believers are now in one body together, gladly using their God-given gifts in the service of the rest of the church that God brings together in his gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at what God does here with the gospel. 
Look what he does in Romans 12. The devil deceives us, divides us, and destroys. And Jesus forgives us, and he heals us, and he unites. So that those in the body who formerly and natively would not like one another are working in love for the good of the church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this practical portion of your word. Thank you that as we as a congregation work through this section, we can have individuals come to mind on each of these categories. We thank you that you have been pleased to save individuals. And we thank you that you are in the business of giving graces, giving gifts for a variety of function. May we use these gifts for your glory and for the good of our brothers and sisters. And if we're not ready to do that yet, if we're not yet right with you, oh God, grant that you'll bring us to faith In your dear Son, we pray it in Christ's mighty name. Amen.